Okay. How is it going? How are you doing? Good. How are you, Morgan? I heard that you um, bumped into some of my friends at the uh, live action gala. Oh, oh, I was like, oh, what did I do? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I loved live action. Who are your friends? Which ones were they? Um, I don't, I, you might, I mean, you probably don't know them because they're not like in the political world or anything, but they're, um, uh, so one of them told me that he saw you, he took a picture with you. And then he was like, I know Veronica or something. And I was like, okay, well, I hope she caught that, but sure. <laughs> No, I just also, I have such a bad memory. I can never remember yeah. anything. So like when people meet me, I'm like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> I just get, but how are you doing? Where are you located now? I'm in North Carolina now. So I'm in North Carolina, just moved here. Uh, way, way better than the, than the Northeast. The Northeast is like crazy right now. Um, right. I mean, you would know, you moved from New York. So um I'm really thankful to move to live in North Carolina now. You don't even understand. Um, yeah, I recently got married. I got married in June. What? You yeah. got married? Yeah, um, we got married. That's nice. Yeah. Congratulations. I feel Thank like I've you. seen that actually. Maybe you posted it, did you? Yeah, I might have. I also um I'm horrible at like posting like life updates honestly on social media so when I yeah. posted my engagement it was like months later mm. no so but congratulations it's so exciting yeah thank you thank you um yeah so I um yeah I got married we're yeah we're doing well um yeah we're doing well I don't know yeah I can't complain honestly yeah, no, I mean, crazy times, but that kind of simple life stuff really gets you going through all of it. So it's it's a really good time to do something like that, I think, and have a partner. So congrats. Um, let's just roll right into it. I like to do a little soft start. Um, do you want to just start by uh, giving everybody a rundown of, of who you are and a little synopsis on your life? And then we'll get yeah. on into it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay. Well, my name is Veronica and I grew up in Nicaragua and the dictator of Nicaragua right now is a full on communist. I don't even want to say socialist because that technically wouldn't be true. He's definitely a full on communist. Uh, he tried implementing communism in the country before and I grew up there. It was a pretty peaceful upbringing for the most part, but then in 2018, we had some political turmoil and the government, the Nicaraguan government started attacking its own citizens. And by this time, thankfully, I had already been able to leave the country. So I had been, I've been living in the United States, but my family is still back in Nicaragua. And I was actually there in 2018 when all the turmoil happened, all the attacks happened. And when the government would go in to different neighborhoods and just attack different, different neighborhoods, try to terrorize the streets. And so that is primarily the reason that has kept me from honestly going back to my country because I don't think that there's enough opportunity or future with that kind of regime in my country my family's still down there and that's why I have decided to 
take it upon myself to speak out about these things in the United States while I'm able to. Yeah, that's amazing. Are you going to try and get them out of the country? Do they want to come back or? So it's a really difficult situation because my parents are already in they're in the later stages of life, you know, they're probably in the 50s, 60s. So not, they're not old, but they're, they're already to a point where they're established. So their primary goal for them is for their kids to be able to get out of the country. So two of my siblings are still there. So I wouldn't say it's, at this point, they're both adults, so it's up to them if they want to leave or, or not. But there's no but, blockages, right? You can, can you just fly out of Nicaragua with no problem? Yeah, yeah. So you, they can just, they can, they can leave whenever they want. The only problem is getting a visa somewhere else. So for example, my brother right now, he wants to get a, he, he wanted to get just a tourist visa to the United States to make sure to see, to see if there's any opportunities out here, see if he can study here or something. And he, and visas right now are blocked until 2023. So they're not able to get any visas right now. So is that for all countries or is that, what is the, what are the details behind that? I honestly think it's a mix of COVID and the regime because during 2018, something similar did happen. And I know plenty of people that actually had to get visas by flying to Costa Rica, which is our neighboring country. So they ended up going to Costa Rica and getting their visas that way. But the US embassy in general was closed in 2018. And so they were, or at least they weren't giving out visas. I don't know if they were actually closed, but they weren't giving out visas. So I think in a way they're using COVID as an excuse, but this was already going on since 2018. So there's plenty of weird. So they're using COVID to achieve certain political goals. That's so strange. I know. I've never heard of something like that. It's like COVID (laughs) is politicized or something. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt. Just random little connection there in my head, you know, silly me. Um, so that's so interesting. So they like it. Is it like a hard place to live right now? Or is it, what's the deal? I mean, you had a really nice upbringing, you said, mm-hmm. fairly simple. And was there a massive change? I mean, the way in Venezuela, they describe it as like one style of life and then Chavez comes and then it's a completely different style of life. So was there that massive shift in Nicaragua or? So Nicaragua has a huge history, a really long history with socialism, communism, dictators. And so the transition when Daniel Ortega won the elections, I believe it was in 2006, mm-hmm. he decided not to transition immediately into, you know, his dream kind of government because he had already tried implementing socialism. He, had, he has been in power I believe this is his second or third time in power. So when he was in power, the first time he actually tried to implement socialism, this was around the 70s, 80s. And so my mom was actually, she was in high school during that time. And she, part of, of being in high school in Nicaragua during that time was, you know, there were there were lines, there were bread lines. You couldn't just go to the store and pick whatever you wanted. The, the government gave you a certain amount of 
household products to use. So a certain amount of soap, a certain amount of shampoo, rice, beans, you name it. And then on top of that, there, you also had to, you know, they implemented the famous literacy program, which takes on after Cuba's literacy program. And it's basically when kids from private schools or even kids from more urban areas would have to go into the rural areas and teach teach other other students basically how to read and write, but with an underlying communist propaganda. So interesting. Um, yeah. So even though, so, whenever Daniel Ortega became president again in twenty in two thousand six, he didn't go right into communism. So I I or or even socialism. So I actually tell people that Nicaragua is its own different animal. We can't really talk about, I almost think that we can't compare Venezuela or Cuba to Nicaragua, at least not in this very moment in time, because a lot of the things that are happening in Venezuela, a lot of things are happening in Cuba already happened in Nicaragua in the 70s and 80s. And so because that already happened and because the people, I mean, my parents went through that, because my parents went through that, the the, or, the Ortega regime, they already expected that if they even alluded in their policies, in terms of their policies, if they even alluded to the 70s or 80s and how bad things were back then, there would be, uh, the, automatically there would be a revolution, right? So instead, what the government has done now is that in sneaky ways, they have taken over certain businesses they've monopolized let's say they've monopolized certain businesses so that way uh let's for example sorry i'm just trying i just lost my train of thought but so for example they they monopolized the the electricity the electricity was is part of the is part of the state right so even though there was only one electric provider before Daniel Ortega became president in 2006, they made it even harder for any other electric providers to enter the country because they wanted full control of all the electrical cables, all the, all the electricity supply in the country. Why? Because then you could use it to your advantage. Yeah. And so it's about control of really important and necessary services. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in this because what we see in Nicaragua is like what we're going to see in Venezuela in a couple of decades. So it's basically the aftermath of what happens when the government tries to make something people owned or worker owned and collectively mm-hmm. owned. And that means seizing the means of production and socializing, I guess we could turn it into a verb, mm-hmm. the economy. And we are, that happened many decades ago. It didn't just happen recently. So Mm -hmm. two different stages, well, actually three, if you include Cuba, but that's really fascinating. So you think it was, it was the electricity. Were there any other serious ones? I mean, with Venezuela, we have the gas industry, of course. And that was the big one, the oil and gas. Um, What was it with Nicaragua? Do you know? So it's very, it's actually very similar to Nicaragua. Actually gas, a tank of gas in Nicaragua today is more expensive than a tank of gas in in the United States. 
which is crazy. California I mean, too. <laughs> yep. Yep. Def- even, even, I don't remember how much it is per gallon, but I do know that, that I know people that are spending a hundred, a hundred and fifty dollars per tank of gas. Yeah. And it makes sense. For, so for, so it, that might not seem a, like a huge difference depending on the car that you have. But when, as, when you drive, when you drive a car like a Toyota Corolla or a Nissan Versa, in in the in the in the United States economy right now, that's probably I don't know maybe thirty dollars for a full tank under the Biden administration. It was probably twenty dollars under Trump. But yeah, yeah. now oh, I feel it. And when I fill my little Jeep Patriot up, and it's <laughs> a significant amount more. I don't know if you can relate to this, but like I'm 24, I operate on a strict budget because I have financial goals that I want to achieve. 100%. And so like, okay, I try and spend $50 on groceries, a certain amount on gas. And when it goes up and you're spending like $10, $15 more per week or per fill up, it's like, it hurts me and it adjusts my goals. I totally really, I think, um, but at the end of the day, you, you need a car and you need to go to work. Right. So yeah, it's a must. must. Yeah. And so in, in Nicaragua, it's the gallon is way more expensive, way more expensive. And so, I mean, and especially for a third world country, it should actually be cheaper, right? For a developing country, you shouldn't be paying a hundred, $150 for a tank of gas. You should be paying, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe, depending on the car that you have. But, and so, because, but it's, it's really been because of the inefficiency of the government and they don't, it's not that they want to make, make it more efficient. You know, it's not that they want the economy to be more efficient. It's not that they want things to be cheaper because the problem is in Nicaragua that anytime you have a good or a product, a service that is being that is being provided in the country, you have different people taking the cut, right? So the first one would be the actual provider of the service. So I would, you would say the business owner, right? Depending on what you're providing. Um, the business owner or the person just providing the product. And the second one is the government. And then they find any way to just, depending on the good and service, they'll find anything to to tax you on it. For example, right now, last time I heard it was about, there was about, I think 40 to 60% in taxes for new cars. So when you, whenever you buy a car- That's like Denmark levels. Yeah, so whenever you buy a car in Nicaragua, you end up paying 40 to 60% more in taxes. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Holy moly. So have fun trying to find, you know, a five, $10,000 car which in the United States is easy to find, right? Especially if, if you're middle class and, and you have financial goals and you just want to, maybe you don't want to spend that much money on a car. It's easy to find something that's reliable for five to $10,000. In Nicaragua, you're probably paying 20, 30,000 for a vehicle that might cost half as much in the United States. So it makes no sense. And there's no reason because it's not that the country is, persevering economically if anything between COVID and the 2018 protests the country has actually gone backwards economically 
Yeah. Let's talk about that, actually. So the 2018 protests. So we had the 70s and 80s. Was there a phase between then and the 2018 protests or did it all just pretty much happen in the 70s, 80s, a kind of pause and slow decay of society and then this this big tumultuous event in 2018? So once once Daniel Ortega ended up stepping down from power, he ended up stepping down for power. We actually, well, he, he was actually, they, they actually elected someone else instead of him. So they elected someone else and every president that we had technically for, we had, I think we, we had three presidents between the seventies, eighties till 2006. We had three different presidents and they were all democratically elected and they were all actually more right-wing presidents. Interesting. The problem was that one of those right-wing presidents actually ended up being very corrupt. And I think that that's one thing that the right has done to Latin America is that even though many politicians may have good intentions, they might even have the right ideas, they might be pro-freedom of speech, pro-economic freedom, some of them still take advantage of the corruption in the country and become corrupt themselves. So because of that, even though we did see, you know, some slow economic growth, 2006 came and we saw a division in the parties in, in both the left and the right. So instead of electing between, choosing between two candidates, Nicaraguans were probably choosing between five main candidates. And so five main candidates, and then most of them were on the right. So there was a division in the right. There were all these different candidates on the right. And that's how Daniel Ortega actually ended up becoming president with 37.5% of the vote. So after that, I wouldn't say there was a... Wait, in what year was this? This was in 2006. Okay. So I would say there was probably not a... I wouldn't say there was much of a decay. It was more things that happened under the table that you really had to mm. understand. You have to understand how a country works, how a government works in order for you to actually understand what's going on. So for example, back in that time, you could, I think the value of a dollar was probably around 10, 10 to 14 Cordoas something like that around that time, give or take, because it changed throughout that year. So let's say it was like 14 Cordoas, 14 Cordoas, Cordoas is our national currency. And then it, it just started increasing. It would change. I kid you not every week, every month. And so now it's probably at 33. It, a dollar costs 33, 33 Cordoas. Mm -hmm. So you saw a you saw a huge difference in inflation from the moment that Daniel Ortega went into power. And then you saw, you saw him 
using tax money for his own personal benefit. He started purchasing businesses. He started meddling with the, with the big business owners, taxing them extra, or even giving them tax cuts in order to achieve his own personal financial and personal goals. And so everything, so you saw those tiny little things, right? And so think of it as adding a little grain of salt to a huge mountain of salt or a little grain of sand to a huge mountain of sand. So by the time it got to 2018, everyone was fed up because they just didn't agree with what the government was doing. And so what really, I guess, what really made it worse was the fact that there was a social security reform in 2018. And the social security reform, basically what it says, said was, what, what it said was that they would, you would pay more for social security taxes but get less benefits. Again, it's one of those things that the government was doing to be sneaky about, but no, no one in, no one in, in, in the major news outlets was really talking about it. They might've talked about it, but it was one of those things that was just normal. We were normal to be boycotted like that. We, it was, it was normal to be boycotted. It was normal to be taken advantage of like that in Nicaragua. It was normal. But then it got to a point where I don't know why a social security reform all of a sudden caused some young university students to start protesting on the streets. They started protesting on the streets and it wasn't, it wasn't a very big protest. It was a peaceful protest. It was on the side of the street. So it wasn't blocking anything, not blocking traffic. They're unarmed. So it didn't really affect anyone. And we're used to seeing protests all the time in Nicaragua, but they're all peaceful. What were they, what were they protesting? Were they protesting in favor of a more democratic process? I mean, you guys had representative government. So what were they really arguing about? The corruption? I would say that was probably at the heart of it. Yeah. But mainly they were protesting the, the social security reform. That's and so strange. I'll have to look into was, that. Excuse me? I'll have to look into that because you, you don't really see people in America doing the same of like social security protesting, you know, if anything, it's like for free college or something that relates to them. So we'll have to look into what exactly got the young people so amped up about a retirement program. Of course, it was mainly the fact that, you know, if someone, if someone's constantly poking you with a plastic knife, Mm-hmm. At first, you're just thinking, oh, it's a plastic knife. It's a plastic knife. It's fine. But there's going to be a point you're probably going to punch that person. I don't know. I mean, I probably <laughs> That's such a good point. analogy. I mean, think about it. It's a plastic knife at first. But it, if that person doesn't stop, you're just going to say, hey, dude, stop it. Right. Well, and also that plastic knife could do some damage if you don't stop it. You know, I mean, if it keeps going and that's exactly what we have in America, it's like this, this burdensome bureaucracy, these never ending COVID restrictions, this concept that we're never going to get out of this emergency situation of a pandemic. And so we, these people have these emergency powers, all of it is so disturbing. And we're almost at two years of this. 
And we're getting poked with that plastic knife again and again and again. And eventually it's like, what is the next step? When do we finally say we're done with this? So I, I can relate to that a lot. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. I feel like we need to do a lot more talking about Nicaragua specifically because it had this mentality of the young people were fed up with this, with the authoritarianism, the decay of the economy, everything that was taking place. And then on top of that, they just keep getting hit and hit with more taxes, more regulation and less services that they're returning. Because if the government operated like a business, then we mm-hmm. would get services in return for what we're paying in. And instead we pay tens of thousands of dollars every year in taxes and we get absolutely nothing from it except for crumbling roads. (laughs) And I think, yeah, I agree. But I also think that the reason it was the young people and not anybody else, because if you think about it, social security, a social security policy isn't really going to affect the young person as much as someone who's my my parents' age. But the reason that the it was primarily the young people is because the older generation they're already used to they they already fought they mm. my mom and my dad my parents left the country and before they left the country they were protesting they i had an aunt that was she part of what she would do was visit all the all the political prisoners in really she would she would visit several political prisoners in her youth. I mean, she was probably way younger, way younger than me at this point, but uh, I, I think she was probably like 19 years old. And that that's what she that's what she would do. She would they they all they all lived in a way crazier situation than the younger generation did. But the problem with the younger generation now in Nicaragua is that they don't, they're scared of the future. They fear the future because there are no economic opportunities. You can't just start a job at minimum wage in Nicaragua and then expect that you'll get out of that job. You know, here in the United States, you can start a job at minimum wage, but if you work hard enough, eventually in a couple of years, you'll be at a different salary, at a different position. And and working your way up. Yep. And you can work your way up. But in Nicaragua, it doesn't always happen that way. In fact, you can go to college in Nicaragua. I know people that went to college for computer science or IT or something like that, something that pays very well in the United States. But there are barely any jobs for that in Nicaragua. And they're still struggling financially. And it makes no sense. And so I think that the reason young people started protesting was because they they want a future and they they're scared they're scared that they will they will have no future and so even as of right now in in after the 2018 protests happened even as of as of right now the government is still terrorizing people the the government is still i mean there are members of my family that are still they're they're still in in jail hadn't have done absolutely nothing a 25 year sentence, there's people that have gotten a, a 100 year sentence for not doing and had nothing to is do with Does it have to do like these political prisons? Is this for people that maybe show up and protest against the, yes the and no. government? Or, I mean, who constitutes the people that are in the, the political prisons? Honestly, there's no logic. I wish that there were logic to it because I wish I could tell you yes 
it's all the people that show up to the protests that are in jail. That's actually not true. There are some people that were leading the protests or that had influence in, in opposing the government. And some of them are actually in jail. For example, there's even political candidates who are supposed to have an election in, in the fall in November. We're supposed to have an election in November and all the, all the political candidates are imprisoned right now. However, there are people what? that are not, <laughs> yes. So, but there are people that are, that did not take part in the protests that have not been even a voice for the opposition or anything that are, that are in prison. So I guess there's a little bit of both. Um, I, I actually have a relative who has worked in banking his, his whole career. He was just a banker, has, has, has a few kids, has a wife at home family man whatever whatever you want to whatever you want to call it and he was a consultant for several nonprofits in Nicaragua and for businessmen as well very very successful guy he's in prison now he had nothing to do with the opposition but according to the government he was a consultant for uh, an organization that an organization of journalists that did not support the government, even though he had nothing to do with them. So consultant, wow. Yeah, so they'll find he was he was like a like a financial consultant. So he um so they will find anything to put people in prison. And and this is part of the strategy, I think. Of course, we don't really know what the strategy is, but I think part of the Nicaraguan government strategy is to imprison random human beings because that way they will help spread fear in their own country. Yeah. Well, I heard like, so there was this crazy story out of Cuba that Che Guevara, when he was killing people and bringing them to the firing line, like the infamous firing wall, that's um, I think in Havana, right? Uh mm-hmm he would invite their family members, not invite, but force the family members to come watch the killing of their loved ones so that they would then go out and tell the community what happened and everybody would be scared. And so it was like the marketing campaign for the fear that they wanted to spread. It's right in line with the tactics they've always used, these crazy people. Of course, and all socialists stick together. So yeah, all socialists stick together. So the 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 mentors of Daniel Ortega were Hugo Chavez, Nicolás Maduro, Fidel Bernie Castro. Sanders went to Nicaragua. Did you know that? Did you know I Bernie Sanders? It. Bernie Sanders I went to know. Nicaragua and talked about like training the Sandinistas. <laughs> training the Sandinistas to do what? You gotta I, wonder. You gotta wonder. I mean, I have to, to look do into what? That I have to look into that because I I don't know, but. One thing that really, I mean, part of the reason why I'm sitting here with you is because of people like Bernie Sanders, because, because, sorry, I just, my husband called me, sorry. Um, So it's because of people like Bernie Sanders, because I would see Bernie Sanders in full on political campaign, trying to be president of the free world talking about how amazing Cuba's literacy program was, 
denying the human rights violations in Cuba and Venezuela, leaders of movements on the left that supported Nicolas Maduro, that had pictures with Nicolas Maduro, that had nothing wrong to say about the man or about Hugo Chavez. And yeah. so I started thinking, you know what? I need to start talking about these things because clearly if those of us that have lived in these countries don't start speaking out, there is not much of a future left for the United States or even our children because in Latin America, especially those of us that grew up in, in, in Nicaragua, that grew up in dictatorships, or even my Venezuelan friends that grew up in, in socialism, we look at the United States as honestly our only hope. Because if it weren't for the United States, I would not be able to, if, if it weren't for this country, I, I just wouldn't be out of my country, you know? I wouldn't yeah. have been able to escape the, the yeah. protests in 2018, or yeah. I wouldn't, I would still be in the midst of all of that. You don't know, you, anyone can be a victim in Nicaragua. Anyone, anyone can be put into jail. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're influential or not influential. That could have been me. That could have been my friend. That could have been my neighbor. It doesn't really matter. So what was that like? I mean, growing up in a country like that where you don't really have a future. So that's, that's one aspect of it. But not only that, you're losing the aspect of prosperity, but then you're also losing just the basic sense of security that a human should feel and can feel in a country like America. I know it's a little weird to say that now because everybody's like freaked out here, but did you as a young person identify the fact that, okay, I got to get out of here? Or was it this long coming to the realization of this is really not for me anymore and I've got to make that that hard decision. Can you walk us through what that was like? Because I can't imagine. I mean, I moved from New York to Texas and that was enough. <laughs> that was enough of a move for me. And we see what's going on in Afghanistan right now. Um, I'm working with a team right now to help get their interpreter out. And just talking to him, I mean, he'll he'll say some really like, sad, sad stuff to me because he's just hoping that we can find some sort of connection to get him the flight, to get him the paperwork, to get him out of there and hopefully potentially here. And it's like, I can't imagine being in a situation like this and having to hide in my home, hoping that people in some other country would be able to help make some pathway for me to escape to that land of the free. We don't have that here. And so like, this is where people come. If we lose that, we're, we're losing a lot. So I would love to hear your story as a young person. Like what age did you start coming to the realization that this had to happen? So I don't want to, Again, my story is going to be very different from someone growing up in Venezuela, right? Because again, Nicaragua was a completely different place during my upbringing, even under a dictatorship. Because of the historical context, there was still some kind of economic freedom. And even though we had to start keeping low profiles more after the 2018 political turmoil happened, even before then, it, it was normal to, you know, to talk about the government and not see immediate consequences as a result, right? So for me, I always grew up, my parents always raised me to 
have the goal to move out of the country. That was just what my parents mm. wanted me to do. Thankfully, I, I came from my, uh, from my dad was able to get a scholarship to study. He's a doctor. So he, he got a scholarship to study medicine out of the country. So he was able to leave the country. However, they had to go back. So they had to come back because they didn't have visas to be anywhere else. So, and during that time, Nicaragua wasn't really as crazy as it was in the 70s and 80s. And so because of that, they couldn't seek asylum anywhere. And so they just stayed and made the best out of it. And that's where I was raised, right? So I was always raised to have that goal to leave the country, go to college, leave the country. And I can't speak for most Nicaraguans because I know that most Nicaraguans probably do not have the means and probably do not have parents that encourage them to get out. Maybe not because they don't think it's the best thing, but also because it's very difficult to know what's out there when you've never been out there. My parents had already been out of the United States. My, my mom sought asylum in the United States and then my dad did two for a while and then they were able to come, they had to come back. So that was kind of what I just grew up with, just the idea of, hey, one day I'm gonna get out. But I never thought that one day the country that I knew would not be there anymore. So I always thought that there would always be an option to come back and see my family if I wanted to come back and even build a life in Nicaragua. And in a way, I think from, from an American's perspective, you're thinking, well, why would you want to do that? But when you grow up in a country, when you grow up in a place and you make it your own and that's your culture and that's your language and that's your food, there's nothing that you want more but to go back to that place. And even though as a Nicaraguan citizen, I could still go back to Nicaragua, I just don't know at this very moment what I would do out there. I don't know where I would get a job. I don't think the economy is that great. And there's so much uncertainty now. So I left when I was, I, I left in 2012. I just went to college. So nothing nothing crazy, nothing, you know, nothing story worthy there. I just went to college in the United States. Where'd you States go to college? And, I'm sorry? Where'd you go to college? I went to Pace University in New York City. Mm, yeah, yeah, I'm from upstate New York. Uh, that's so yeah. interesting. So you applied from Nicaragua, you got into Pace, and was your goal to just go to school and then come back? Or were you wanting to start a career in America first? Well, my goal was to stay in the United States but then in 2018, so I graduated college, I stayed in the US and in 2018, that's when I received an email from a friend saying, hey, we're basically on the brink of civil war. So pray for the country because we have no idea what's going on. I had not heard anything from my parents. I don't know if they were just trying not to worry me or something. And so I, I called my parents and they started sharing with me what was going on, the fact that the government was terrorizing the streets, the fact that there were political prisoners, people being imprisoned for no reason, guilty and not guilty. And at that point, 
that's when I said, you know what, if I ever wanted to go back, I don't think it would be a good idea to go back. And mm-hmm. so at that point, I think for the first time in my life, I always felt that I had no plan B. You know, I think most people think if, if things don't work out in this new city, you know, some people move to the big city and they think, you know, if things don't work out here, I can always go back to my parents' house. There was no going back to my parents' house at that point, at at least not in 2018. I didn't think there would be an opportunity to go back because I just didn't know what was going to happen. And it's really scary waking up every day and not knowing if your family's safe, not knowing if you'll be able to talk to your parents again because there's just so much violence on the streets and it terrifies you. And so even though I'm still able to legally go back and forth from Nicaragua to the US and I'm still able to visit my parents, the the level of uncertainty that there is in Nicaragua right now, really it, most people that, even people that have lived there their whole lives are wanting to get out because there's so much uncertainty. And you don't know if your children are going to be safe. They might be safe today, but they might not be safe tomorrow, you know? Yeah. Jeez. So so you got that message. You went back, right? I did go back. I went back. So, and- so what was that timeline and, and what did that look like? You get that crazy message from your friend. And then yeah. I, I love this story. So I'm like, I'm excited to hear it again. But I, I just think you're amazing for doing it. Yeah. So I went, I go back in 20... 20- I, go, I actually went back in 2018, about three weeks after the protest started happening. And, you know, you'd what was that like? Because I, I always try and put myself in your shoes, like <laughs> getting that message and being like, I should go. <laughs> I should get a well, flight. Did you just save up and buy a flight or? That wasn't my original thought to go. I okay. think after talking, after talking to my parents, after figuring out, what was going on being the oldest of of three there there's there's a few there were a few family matters i had to deal with back home yeah more more on the legal side right so not not anything personal but just you know in the united states if your your parents your parents might have assets your parents might have a house and and you think oh if my parents pass away it'll it'll be given you know, it'll come, it'll be passed down to me. Well, in a place like Nicaragua, knowing the history of this government, chances are that's not going to happen. If you lose your house, if you lose your house, if they take your parents out, or if they, if they, if, if they're murdered, if they're imprisoned, whatever it is, and then the government gets into your house, you're, you lost that house. Yeah. There's no, there's, there's no right no, to property. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no right to property there. Um, there's no such thing as And so, so that's just an example of kind of the matters that I wanted to go down there and deal with. And so I went down there and I actually went down there for three weeks and my dad was not happy about it. He was not happy about it. He was like, "Uh uh-uh. As soon as he found out I was coming, he was like, I'm putting you on a plane, on the next plane back. And, and, you know, it wasn't that he didn't want to see me, but it was just a difficult situation. 
But I said, you know what? This is my country. And if I don't, I have to fight for my country. If I don't stand up, right? Who else is going to stand up? Because at the end of the day, we're all responsible for what we do. So I decided to go down there, deal with the family matters that I had to deal with. I'm also the oldest of three and my siblings at that point weren't in the country. So I dealt with the family matters that I had to deal with and there were protests every single day. And I would go out every single day to the protests. I, I would go out and I would go out with my flag and I would go out and say, you know, I want this country to be there for my children, for the future, for, for the, for, for my future and, and for the future of all the Nicaraguans that have been robbed of their, their rights and their opportunity of prosperity. And so I would go, I, I would just go to, to the, to the protests, but it kind of, you know, obviously the protests weren't always a hundred percent safe. So there was this one time I went to this protest and I don't know why we did this, but it was in the evening and it was near one of the, so there's a backstory to this. So there was the main people that were protesting, the university students that were protesting, they actually took control of the universities and yeah, they had to. Because the reason they had to is because they couldn't go back home because the government said, if you go back home, we're going to find out where you live and we're going to go persecute your family, right? So to keep their family safe, they would stay in the universities. So in order for them to stay in the universities, they had to, they basically built up barriers around the universities, right? So I went to protest, not in the university itself, but outside of it. Mm -hmm. And then someone, there's always people that are kind of infiltrate those protests that are actually paid by the government, but that are not, they're paid by the government, but they're not actually uh, protesters, right? Mm -hmm. So, so some people that infiltrated the protest said, hey, they're the, the paramilitary officers are coming. They're coming this way. Get out of the way because the paramilitary com officers are coming. And so we were freaking out. And the only place for us to run was basically behind the barriers at the, at the university. And that was the only, I guess that was, that, that was like the first line of defense between the paramilitary officers and the university students. That's usually where they would engage in combat. And so nothing happened that night, thank God. But I was terrified because at that point I was thinking, am I going to die today? I don't know what's going on. Obviously I wasn't going to engage in combat. I don't know how to use a firearm. And so, oh my um, gosh. so we just hid there. I don't know how long we hid there. It could have been a few hours. It could have been 50 minutes. I have no idea how long I hid there. And so we hid there behind the barriers and and then we just went back to our car and, and we left, right? Um, but that, so that was that was that story. And then yeah, and then the next day I would just continue continue going out to protests as if nothing happened. And then I, I was able to leave three weeks later. But that's pretty much it. I mean, I wasn't obviously I wasn't like in the front lines of 
I was, I've no one influential in the protest. That's the thing is like, everybody thinks, oh, I shouldn't go out there and do it. Cause like, who am I? You know what I mean? But it's, there's power in numbers. And so people showing up to these things is how you bring actual change about. And we're seeing that in America with the school board rallies and everything. Like people that don't usually show up to that stuff are starting to do it. And, um, we should close it up soon, but I I think such a great note to end on. And you, you really testify to this is like, you may not do politics, but politics does you. And Mm -hmm. I heard, um, Mike Pompeo say that recently. And he was like, I'm so sick of hearing people tell me, oh, Mike, I don't do politics or especially Mm -hmm. a lot of veterans. They, they look at stuff and they say, I I just defend the country. You know, I don't, I don't do politics and all that dirty stuff. Yeah. I don't like politics either. I don't, I hate political consultants and all these things, the industry that it is, but politics does us dirty if we don't participate in it. And, uh, so that's really inspirational to hear your story. And do you have like a message for young people right now? I mean, I've got a few messages that I would like to share with them because I get a little frustrated with them, but with your experience with everything, I mean, you have this beautiful new family. I'm so happy for you and you're in America now. And I just feel like you're such a grateful person for everything that you have. And I love that. And you're really beautiful. Do you have a message for the young peeps out there that feel, first of all, either hateful towards America and ungrateful or people that are nervous and concerned and want to do something? There's kind of two groups, I would say, in our young population. I do. I would say take care of your freedom of speech and protect protect it with your life because your freedom of speech next to your actual physical life is the most important thing that you can have and the most important thing that your government can grant you. Mm. So if you lose that, you lose everything. So if there's any movement, if there's any politician that is trying to shut other people down because maybe they don't agree with what they're saying or maybe you just believe in cancel culture and you believe in just silencing the voices that you don't agree with, let me tell you that the most important thing that we have in this country is the power of our voices. And if once we lose that, we will lose absolutely everything. And so protect your freedom of speech and protect your, (coughs) sorry, protect your freedom of speech and protect your right to defend that that speech. Amen. Preach it. Yeah. (laughs) Give me a second. I'm just going to rebut it. No, no, it's fine. Really. um, We can close it off. I'll let you cough first. And we edit this. So don't worry. We can edit your coughs out. But um, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. And we'll have to have you back on. Like I have so many questions now and we're trying to do shorter episodes. So we'll do another episode. But like, I just have so many questions about the history of Nicaragua and stuff and what's going on right nowadays. So we'll have to talk more, Um, but thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. And we all love you. And um, we hope you have a great week. Thank you. Yeah, anytime. And thank you so much. Actually, Oh, sorry. Can, can you tell everybody how they can connect with you? Do you have any ways that you want um, them to follow you or anything? Or do you want to remain private? I'll edit this out so I don't have it um, showing the ask you, but. They can follow me at, I mean, not really. I don't really care. Okay. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, really- that's fine. I didn't know if you had like a blog or something or anything, because we're happy to promote it and I could put the link in, but, um, but yeah, seriously, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And you're amazing. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Morgan. And yeah, let me know if you need anything. And, you know, I'm always reading for you and for the rest of the conservative movement. So. Uh, thank you, darling. We'll see you later. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. Love you.